Hello and welcome to episode 7 of the Gig Stories podcast with me, Chris. And me, the very red-foreheaded one, Alex. Have you not been putting your Factor 50 on? Oh, no. We have one bit of sun. We've literally had a day of sun in Salford and my huge forehead uh, looks like a salmon. I've had to adjust the colour on my screen because my eyes are feeling a little bit, you know, (laughs) I'm blinking. Um, oh we we've got two very very see-through celts here yeah absolutely <laughs> bit, of sun, bit of sun and we're hiding we're hiding now sun sun's out music is out chris last night was brilliant we had tea outside with the kids the kids had their bluetooth speaker music on in the sunshiny garden listening to sunshiny songs i'm actually really happy because the sun is out uh, uh, again today and it's going to happen again so i i love i love this time of year and the weather because for me it's intrinsically linked with listening to music in the back garden mm. so yeah bit of vitamin d vitamin d in the park exactly exactly also excited because there's lots of there's actually lots of bits of news that i'm picking up from that from the past few days yeah one that i'm uh very excited about we had a, a tweet from Peter Johnson, uh, a fellow Welshie, uh, asking about our theme music to the Gig Stories podcast. Yeah, yeah. And it is, of course, from our amazing friend and uh, musical maestro, James Holt, who is a, uh, I was going to say he's a Manchester musician, that's how he's known, but he lives in Bolton, and I think he's from that way, so if that's right i'm sure he'll let us know if if you get that wrong but i i love i love the theme tune i i've i've loved it since i first heard it and he's multi-instrumentalist and so the fact that he plays all the instruments and and he's got such energy in that in that short piece of music it really feels like feels a bit allman brothers you know that kind of american 1970s Um, yeah, it's got a real, real Almond Brothers feel. And therefore, to my ears, it sounds like a classic television theme tune yeah. we've got on the podcast. Oh, it's amazing. Yeah. Wonderfully talented James Holt. But he's got great news. He is going to be playing the main stage at Kendall Calling. He is, yeah. Oh, yes, James. Yeah, knockout. And he's just um, announced, I think it was a rescheduled gig yep. at Academy 3 in... Oh, which month is it? Sorry. Uh, I believe it's, it's, it's October or November. Right. Um, Fantastic. Well, we'll put details up on the website as well, because if you haven't seen James Holt play live, he's brilliant. He's so great. The first time I saw him play was supporting uh, Slow Readers Club during Independent... Oh, what a gig. Yeah, it was Independent Venue Week, and it was at the Met in Bury, and he supported uh, Slow Readers. Readers! And... Um, he, was, he was knockout I mean go uh, apart from anything else go and just check out his sweet sweet shirts he has these oh. amazing shirts at every single gig um, so, best shirts yeah. in the business that boy yeah but he can write a melody oh yeah he's, he's oh, just knockout tell you what that James Holt he can write a melody he can write a melody he? he can write a melody that boy absolutely oh. So, um, so yeah, check him out. Check him out. And other news, and and I want to know what you think about this, Chris. Now, you you know about my uh, ongoing uh, love affair with Glastonbury. 
Hmm. And that when I die, my ashes are going to be sprinkled over the pyramid stage during someone's headline set. It'll probably be by Chris Martin. That's what happens, isn't it? He'll shoot them out with some confetti in, in one of these surprise moments. <laughs> um, oh, look, Alex is, <laughs> is over 100,000 people now. <laughs> but they'll, they'll be shot out and they'll be in the shape of Alex. They'll yeah. spell out Alex, the ashes for momentarily as, as Coldplay, you know, get to that bit of fix you. And they'll yeah. it'll shimmer across the sky. Alex. Oh, yeah. And then for, for days afterwards, yeah. Glastonbury attendees will be washing bits of Alex out of their yeah. hair. And, Picking me out of their teeth and stuff. And out of their nose. <laughs> blowing blowing Alex out of their nose. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm and we'll really... say it's what he would have wanted. <laughs> 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 to be blown out of somebody's nose. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> The makers of Glastonbury, all right. So Glastonbury Festival just announced uh, an event called Live at Worthy Farm. Yeah. Which is going to be uh, Saturday 22nd of May this year, 2021. And it's a global live stream event. So it's not, it's not an attended festival. It's a one day live stream event. And oh, surprise, surprise, just mentioned it. They've announced Coldplay. Uh, are going to be performing Damon Albarn, Haim, Idols, Georgia Smith, Kano, my boy Kano, Michael Kiwanuka, I love him, uh, and Wolf Alice. That's um, a decent, decent lineup, that. Yeah, it really is. Um, and there's going to be uh, very special guests and uh, DJ Honey Dijon. So I'm going to do it. I'll be honest, I'm going to do it because, you know, I, I just love Glastonbury and I, I just want to see, you know, how it looks how it goes how it sounds and i, I want to see what these artists do for this for this event and like you, you can you can buy tickets now because it's a stream so you just get your link and i believe it's 20 pounds but i i want to know from you chris it, streaming this past year we've had a lot of online streaming performances you know nick cave uh, nick cave had that sellout one where it was just him at crystal palace it was ali pali mm. yeah and it's the only place you could see it. And he said that he would never release it again. So you had to have a ticket and you had to watch that their performance one off, genuine one off, which I think is fantastic. Yeah. And, you know, to we had something called um, North Will Rise Again the other night, which was basically Tim Burgess uh, trying to uh, help raise money for the, the Music Venues Trust. They had two nights, Lightning Seeds headlined one night, the Charlatans the other, and supporting the Charlatans were our good friends. Lines, yeah, fantastic. So, do you think this is going to continue, Chris? You've got someone as big as Glastonbury doing a live stream, even when we're out of this pandemic. Do, uh, have we seen? Will we have seen the last of streams once we're all out and about? Or do you think this is going to continue? Will this be a, 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 a way of income or a way of spreading the word for artists? What do you think? I think it's definitely going to get factored in when people are organizing tours i think i mean one thing when you when you go and see a, a big band they tend to just go to the cities the, the main city yeah, big the, places, the, the, yeah. the, the big cities and obviously at the moment people can't travel but when people can travel these cities are often a bit too far for people who are in really deeply rural areas and i think if there's a market there, then I think organisers of tours would be remiss to 
kind of ignore that um, that potential. And you know, if you can get five hundred thousand people watching online at cost of a few quid e- each time, that that could be massive for a small band. So, do you think it might be they might do it as part of the tour? Potentially, yeah. I mean, I think. Um, I, I think or would it be was, extra? Again, I, I think. It, I, I, I don't know in what form it will take, but I think um, organisers really ought to factor it in as something that they could do, certainly to to reach as, as wide an, or, uh, an audience as possible. I like I like your point that you know I've always been lucky. You know I've lived in Cardiff, London, Manchester, Leeds. Uh, I've lived in big cities, and so I've always had e- easier access to gigs even those big ones you know i was lucky enough growing up to have the national stadium or the millennium stadium in cardiff or whatever it's called now so stadium gigs if i wanted that the arena and you're right there's a lot of people that have to make a lot of effort to get to gigs and yeah maybe maybe promoters will will look at streaming i mean i'd be interested to know let's just say the charlatans are playing a manchester gig you and i can go to that gig Will there also be maybe a possibility if you buy a ticket to stream it? So if you live in the middle of nowhere or you can't make that gig, but you want to see the Charlatans play in a, 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 you know, a home gig, you know, so would you actually be able to just stream that live or would it just be the band on their own from somewhere playing a gig for the stream? Yeah, there's yeah, lots of potential. Well, I mean, there's also, you know, you you often buy a DVD and you'll get the download code so you can put it on your laptop or on your, your whatever device. Or if you oh, buy a piece, of, wow. you, you, you buy an LP and you get a download code as well. So what's to say that if you go to a gig, that would be quite nice if you paid an extra fiver or something or a bit more, then you can get that live stream. You get that gig, you get that gig yeah. That's that, that's that's a potential as well. I don't know. I'm just I'm just um, as they say in America, I'm spitballing here. But um, you're covered. I can can hardly see you. <laughs> um, he's, spit, he's spitting balls. I'm spitting balls. Um, um. <laughs> moving on. Um, so so yeah. yeah I, think... I really think that's the thing to. I, I'd be interested to to hear from the listeners. You know what, what do you think? Have you enjoyed streaming? Also, tell us. Your favourite streams that you've you've watched? I've had some great times. New Year's Eve um, with uh, Shlomo, uh, the uh, wonderful, famous uh, beatboxer. Um, as I say, you know the Charlatans, Nick Cave. All the stuff that uh, United we streamed did. Um, yes, there was loads done there. Yeah. Um, so what have you liked, listeners? Let us know on uh, on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. What streams have you enjoyed over the past year? But also. What are your thoughts on the future of uh, streaming? And it'd be interesting, Chris, if we can sort of reach out to some of our new musical musician friends to see what their views are. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, see what see what they think about it. Yeah. Um, so anyway, should we get on with this first of two episodes this Easter bank holiday weekend? Sorry? What was that, yeah. Chris? The what? A first of two? You heard right, Alex. You heard right. No. Yeah. There's an episode today, Easter Sunday, and yet Bank Holiday Monday, there's another one. Yeah, absolutely. I know. So our guest on episode seven, 
I want to say episode <laughs> seven. Sorry, what was that? On ep- which episode are we on? Episode seven, I think. Oh, I'm today's gonna... guest. Yeah, I'm going to say episode seven. Am Absolutely. I correct in saying that? Who needs the Easter Bunny today? <laughs> no one needs the Easter Bunny. Everyone needs a bit of Rick Witter. And and to be honest, actually, he will come round and hide eggs in your garden if you want chocolate eggs. So I hear. He's, I he's can't. I can't move in my garden for eggs that Rick Witter's left. <laughs> um, so I wish he'd stop doing it. I'm going to have to message him and say, look, enough's <laughs> enough, mate. We have a great chat with Rick. Yeah, we and, do. Um, we talk about um, early incarnations of uh, of Shed 7, before they were Shed 7. Yeah, don't spoil it. Don't tell them. No, oh. the names. There's a couple of belting names there. We talk about unusual gigs. And we talk about when Shed 7 supported Aerosmith and it's not the first time that Aerosmith has come up in this podcast. No, you are right. In fact, it came up with Rick McMurray from Ash. The Ricks, Ricks and Aerosmith, they seem to go hand in hand. Um, If you're a Rick and you love Aerosmith, um, please get in touch. (laughs) (laughs) That's it. Give us a... If you've you've supported Aerosmith or they've supported you, then just... (laughs) Give us a shout. Supported you. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. If Aerosmith has supported you, I absolutely want to hear from you. If we've got any listeners who, who've had any kind of love, care, support from Aerosmith, from the Toxic Twins, I want to hear about it. Anyway, what more could you want for an Easter Sunday podcast, eh, Chris? Yeah. Well, you could want Rick Witter. Hello and welcome to this week's episode with a gorgeous guest who owns the second best hips in the business, but the very best and biggest maracas known to man. He's the grand old Duke of York, the bully boy. All right, I'll stop. It's Rick Witter. (laughs) The grand old Duke of York. I'll be honest, it's it's only me that laughed, but I did chuckle when I when I I was chuckling a little bit inside. Outside, just, outside, I was raging. Who's got the best hips then? Well, I was thinking about that, and I don't know if it was Jim Morrison or if it's Shakira. Um, well, I mean, good company then. I'll take either of them. Yeah, you, you are. I mean, those those hips, mate. They don't lie. No. They do not lie, do they? <laughs> And the best maracas. To be honest, I am 48 now, so I've had two little holes inserted either side of the hip, and I get some oil put in there just before the gig. (laughs) You oil them up. (laughs) How are you anyway, Rick? How are you doing, mate? Good, thank you. Not too bad. Just uh, like everyone else, just trying to wait to see when we can all go out and do stuff again. Yeah, because obviously being a musician and a full-time musician, and it's good that in the past few years that you were all able to get back and do that. It must be very strange because there's plenty of people who, you know, have continued working. It's a bit weird for me, but my wife's working full time from home. And But for musicians like yourself, especially as you had festival season and shed Semba, how's, how's it been? Well, to be honest, the beginning of COVID 
kind of happened when, to be honest, we would have just been at home doing nothing anyway because we'd just done a big shed sember. So That's usually, right. usually we do a shed sember every two years. So usually after we've done one, we'd kind of down tools for half a year anyway, really, and just kind of chill and relax and come down off the experience because it's such a big thing. It takes us half a year just to come down off it. <laughs> is that is that an age uh, thing? <laughs> yes, I think it probably is, yes. <laughs> well, to be honest with you, when we do a Shed Sember, if we're doing like 24, 25 gigs over the space of about 30 days, we like to put everything into each gig we do. We, you know, we like to put a show on and hope that people will leave thinking they've just had a great night out. And I, I believe that that should happen because people are spending their hard-earned money coming to watch us. So, you know, it's the biggest thing ever, really, when, when you can overhear people leaving the venue singing Chasing Rainbows still or just basically going, oh, God, I can't wait till that happens again. Do you remember what happened at that bit? You know, so I find that really important. So we, but the problem with that is it's kind of like we create this party atmosphere and it's like having 25 parties in 30 days. And I am 48, yeah, so it does start to take its toll slightly. But this is the irony, isn't it? For your dates are bigger and more densely packed than when you were touring back in the 90s. What yeah, pretty much, apart from now. Is that just now... bad planning? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, we just somehow got more popular. It's weird, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, to be honest, way back in the 90s, you know, it wasn't just the touring aspect. It was the writing and it was the recording and then it wasn't just playing in England it was going off and just nipping over to France for a couple of weeks and then going off to Spain so it was more intense then whereas now we do a few festivals on the year we don't do Shed Sumba and then we do the big Shed Sumba so it's kind of a lot more relaxed so we get to appreciate it a lot more and we get the say in whatever we do rather than being told what to do. That sounds healthy, very healthy. Yeah great it's great, yeah. I mean, we're, we're very lucky that we can afford to do that, if you know what I mean. You know, we, we don't really, we don't, we don't desperately need to, to go and work down the co-op in June, you know, which is which is a very lovely thing because you yeah. just never know what's around the corner in life, do you? I mean, we all do other things on our downtime, but I think a lot of it was instant pleasures in 2017. That really helped. I, I, was, I wanted to mention that because all of a sudden, well, not all of a sudden, and... And if if I'm going to be honest as well uh, with the listeners, I've known Rick for a few years and I was very lucky enough when you were in Spain recording the album. I remember I was camping with my family and you sent me a couple of tracks and were like, look, these aren't mixed. They're not final, but have a listen. And I remember lying there with my daughter, with Grace, as you, as you know, and she still reminds me of it now. And it was a really nice moment for her because she she feels like it's really special. And um, listening to a couple of tracks and I had that dread where, you know, your friend is doing something and you think, <laughs> oh, I hope it's not shit. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah, well, to be honest, a lot of a lot of my friends said that to me. In fact, I actually sent Chris Moyles room in my house just after we'd done it, and he said it took him the weekend to get round to listening to it because he was that nervous that it was going to be rubbish that he just couldn't bring himself <laughs> to actually put it on. And then he said he was, then he was really, really pleased when he heard it. <laughs> to be honest, you know, to be honest, we we would never dream of releasing anything that we didn't think was up to scratch, and we. we we always knew that if we did come back with something after 16 years, 
it'd have to be at least on a par with our back catalogue because otherwise you are just shortening your career span. And we were kind of, we were writing these songs and we were thinking, well, this is actually really good, isn't it? So we, we weren't bothered. That really interests me though, because I think there's artists that we could pick up and, and say, yeah, they would say the same thing, but actually that output is not good because trying to just go back to being a Shed 7 fan, because uh, I can you know, I've got the ticket stubs to back it up. I was always a really big Shed 7 fan. Instant Pleasures is, yeah, it's my favourite Shed 7 album. And that is quite something when you've got the back catalogue that you have. And, and when you go to Shed Semba, which is just pure hits, I mean, that's one hell of a set list. And so I was surprised. And I don't mean that in a rude way, like, oh, look at you creating a really good album. I was surprised that, oh, this might, this isn't just a good album this might actually be their best album. And that doesn't yeah. always happen. Some bands say that and you hear it and you go, mm, it's not that. What, what, when did you all sort of think, hang on, boys, this, this might be it? I think when we'd written the majority of it, I think it was probably when we were recording it in Spain, it kind of all came together and there was points where songs were changing while we were actually recording them, which was very exciting because in the past, as a band, we'd be quite guilty of writing a song and you'd even have people like Stephen Street producing it and, and they'd be being a producer and suggesting things and, and, and we'd be going, why are you suggesting that? We've written this, this is what, just record it, you know what I mean? Which is, looking back, is pretty bad, really. We gave youth a little bit more room and he was really good. He was like a school headmaster, you know, he's like, what are you doing? Don't do that there, do this here. And so we're kind of listening to him and thinking, well, that's not going to work. And then we'd try it different ways and realise that, well, well actually, that's that's clever and that's a lot better so he, he was a big part of it was youth but I think when we'd recorded the bones of the album and got it back to England we spent a couple of weeks in youth's studio in his house in his attic and getting all of the, the backing singers on there and you know all of this little overdubs it kind of started to all make a lot more sense so after a couple of bad mastering sessions where it just wasn't sounding quite right uh, we had to go back a couple of times and get it remastered. And then from that point, we just we were really proud of it. And I, I kind of agree. I'm, I'm glad we did it in the respect that if we never do anything else ever again, we've really gone out on a little bit of a high, you know. Well, for me, this is the best way of summing it up, especially as this is a live gig and a live music podcast. I was I was gutted that we didn't get just an instant pleasures tour because I want to hear all that album. And I know yeah. you... I, well, you can, you can do, you you could have done whatever you want, but in Shed Semba, it's there's an understanding because it's a thing with the fans that yeah. you get you get the hits, but you did play tracks on Instant Pleasures. Well, the good thing is with it live, all of these newer songs they just fit in so well with the old stuff, you know. It's like because Instant Pleasures is a very Shed Seven album, but it just sounds yeah. fresh. You know what I mean? Even an Instant Pleasures album track, because we were playing a few of them. We, I think we played Butterfly on a Wheel and we were playing, um, you know, I can't remember. We played a, we played a few of the non-singly ones off Instant Pleasures and they still just fitted in really nicely. I think with Instant Pleasures, because we'd spent an awful lot of time making sure the running order of it was good because we wanted it to be like a journey. So that does open up for in the future at any time if we decided, sod it, let's go out in July and just do about six gigs 
of instant pleasures, you know. And the good thing there is it's over, that's over in an hour, so you can go back on and at least play another five or six big hits as your encore. So it works, it works. Uh, absolutely. And it's for me, it was it was amazing because I think more than any other band at the time, going back to Maximum High, I remember my sister who I took to who I took to your gig, and we'll get on to that. I think she thought there was a greatest hits album. It sounds like a greatest hits album. I think a lot of people assume the Maximum High was a greatest hits album. Well, it's not. It's not. But you've, no, got, you've got single after single after single. Track <laughs> is, a, is the, you know, all killer, no filler. And, and that was it with Instant Pleasures for me. I'm listening to it through. And then I listened a second time. And I listened to it, I think, a four or five times straight in, in a day. And my wife was like, love you, you you're gonna have a break uh, <laughs> I've, got to, I've, got, I've got to know i need to be able to sing it quite quickly and, and get it in my mind and i just thought yeah. this is bonkers because it was like a maximum high it was like oh well, this this could be a single or this could be a single or this could yeah be which in nowadays in the way we consume music you know is is quite, is quite yeah well that's this is another point yeah because everything is so instant these days that's kind of half the reason it's called instant pleasures because yeah. you know you don't really necessarily even have to listen to an album anymore you just pick and choose you know you, you can shuffle you can do whatever you want so we wanted to kind of be a bit old school really and just create a good album with a good cover and a good a good track listing did you have a a, a side one and a side two in mind or was it a we did, yeah, yeah. We're totally Chris. We thought we thought this is what I mean. We we kind of spent a long time getting the order right. We were obviously with enemies and friends starting side two. It was a slightly different sound yeah. to reintroduce the album, you know. Especially coming after Better Days, which ended side one, which was a bit of a sad, a sad, hopeful kind of song. So, you know, yeah. And then maybe a few years ago, there's a song on there called Hang On. Would ordinarily end an album because of the way it goes on at quite a long time at the end. But we just thought, no, let's not do that. Let's do something a bit different. We've done that with Parallel Lines. We've done that with Step Inside Your Love. So we wanted to end, we wanted to end with a song that, would make people put it back on straight away like Mr. Winters did on the first time he heard it. We, we wanted people just to, it ends on a song called Invincible. So, and that to yeah. me is one of the best songs on the album. So a song ending an album isn't necessarily meaning that it's not very good. So it's just bunged on at the end. I think for me, it's really important for people to go, wow, that was good, right? Let's get it on again from the beginning. Yeah, I mean, I suppose track six or seven, you know, the first song on side two would in the past when it was LP based another single do you know what I mean so you'd, you'd have yeah. that, that kind of um, structure to it you'd, you know you yeah more recent times you'd, you'd end up with a whole load of singles at the front and I think uh, yeah. I think the, the LP format the vinyl format it lends itself a lot more to that kind of care around exactly that yeah I think care is care is the right word I think yeah it makes you have to care yeah, yeah. I mean funnily if you say that but a maximum high the, the first track on side two on that was a song called lies and that was very nearly going to be a single it wasn't in the end but right okay. it, it was touted as being another single yeah it could have all been singles let, oh, let stop. Me... like a massive ego rub on a Monday night Oh, I'd, you love that. There's nothing better on a Monday. Because this is live music pod, I am going to link the talk of Instant Pleasures to something you did do during lockdown, which was release a, a live album, you know? Yes. Uh, another yes. night, another town. Was that always the plan? 
or was that sort of prompted by the lockdown or, or, or anything? Yeah, kind of. Yeah. I mean, we, I'm surprised we weren't doing this a lot earlier, but we just decided probably about three or four years ago to just start recording all of the gigs on the desk, you know, on the, on the mixing desk. So we had. Oh, you've never told me that. Yeah, well, we'd, we'd almost forgotten ourselves that we were doing it. You know, we were just recording stuff just just to have as reference points or as, as backups. And then COVID happens and we're all locked in and nothing's happening at all. And we're realising that we're not going to be playing any festivals last year. And it might have been Paul who just said, right, well, hold on a minute. We've, we've got a lot of songs. We're not going to be playing in, anytime soon. So the next best thing, I guess, would be to release a live album. And then at least people can pretend they're at our gig if, if, they, if they feel like it. I mean, I was almost saying in interviews, get a big picture of us up on your living room wall. Get your kids to barge into you like the pissed up people at festivals. <laughs> get on loud, get your dirty wellies on, unless you want to knock your carpet up and just imagine you're at a gig when you listen to it. Yeah. It was hugely popular, wasn't it? It went down so well with the fans. Yeah, it was great. But again, you know, we just thought, because we have released a couple of live album kind of things over the years, but they've always been a bit hodgepodge, you know, they've always just been thrown out there. So we thought if we're going to do this, we want to, have a, a career-defining live album, like your U2 Under a Blood Red Sky, like your, your Duran Duran, what was that one, Arena, was it? Oh, yes, yeah. It, just the, the classic, the Who live at Leeds, you know, all of these yeah. classic live albums that stand the test of time. We thought, right, well, let's let's do this properly. So we had, we chose a lot of the gigs from the last 2019 tour, but we also recorded Castlefield Bowl that we did in 2018. And we, to be honest, it got a little bit intense because we were listening all all in our own homes on emails, listening to these rough mixes, because that's all they were, of performances from, from lots of different gigs. So we were all kind of listening to 20 different versions of She Left Me On Friday live, trying to work out the best... <laughs> God. But not only not only playing wise, but also energy levels, and you know, you're not necessarily make, releasing a live album and trying to make it sound like a studio album. You want it to be like you're at a gig. So if there is the odd bum note or or the odd, the odd little bit of out of tune that's going on, don't worry too much about that. You know, it's more about the vibe of the song. So it was quite intense having to listen to so many versions of the same bloody song. And surely but you did it. Listening, you were all listening to yourselves as well. So Paul's thinking, that, oh, yes, of course. Out. This is why we had this discussion at the beginning and said, look, don't overthink your performance. Think about the actual, the full vibe, you know. So we managed to um, whittle it all down. And then we invited Chris Sheldon, who produced our Maximum High album, to mix it for us because he does a lot of mixing. So he mixed it, you know, and then that took quite a few weeks of toing and froing. Is this is this what you're after? Well, can you just make that a little bit louder? Like your proper bands with the magic bloody up and down volume button. We had stories, we had stories like if a bass player saying, my bass isn't loud enough. And then the producer would say, well, he'd just twist this little knob on the desk and say, is that better? 
and the bass player would go, yeah, that's loads better. And it's just a, it's a button that doesn't do anything. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it's all it. about rubbing the ego. I think it's called the placebo button. Yeah, that's yeah, <laughs> The placebo yeah. button. Yeah. 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 Turn placebo up a bit. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I think it's amazing. I think it's amazing that you've released that album. It is a, it's a great record. And um... Well, it's not only that, the sleeve. It was really important as well to get the sleeve. We had this kind of idea of... Ex- explain the sleeve to people who've made well, it. Well, the main idea at the beginning is we just wanted to make it look quite classy. So we kind of, because we're big Rolling Stones fans, we, we kind of wanted to n- not recreate, but just take a nod to the Exile on Main Street album by the Rolling Stones. So it's kind of similar in design to that. But because we have quite a few photographers who follow us around uh, at each gig and we allow them on stage and they can go in the pit and then they go to the back of the room and take with all the heads in, in front of us. So we invited them to give us all of their photographs as well. So again, that was a big task of going yeah. through hundreds and hundreds of photographs by different photographers and picking. It's just a huge montage of a shed summer. And it's, you know, we didn't just want pictures of us on stage and pictures of the crowd. We wanted key moments that you would see, you know, so there's shots of us getting off a tour bus, there's shots of us backstage, there's shots of us pissed, there's shots of us walking to the stage. <laughs> So there's a few magic moments that happen at Shed 7 gigs, though. There's one particular night in Blackburn, I think, on that last tour. And this is a Monday night in Blackburn, which is what, what I kind of touched upon earlier about every night being a party night. You know, you could be playing at the Brixton Academy on Saturday, but you can still generate a similar atmosphere in Blackburn on a drizzly Monday night. Because <laughs> in, the sen- in the sense that everyone in that room is just absolutely loving it. And there's a particular, if people want to have a look at the, the cover, that you'll see that there's a lad in a wheelchair on one of these pictures that was captured. Uh, and it just so happened he was in his wheelchair, but four of his mates were holding him above, above their heads while he sat in his wheelchair. Brilliant. Love even, that. The, even the security guards were laughing and not saying, get yourself down. It's a so safe. <laughs> you know, so, so and it's nice that things like that are captured. I told my my first best friend from Cardiff, and I think you've met him, Ben, that I was going to be chatting to you. He's got the vinyl album, and he's like, please tell him that uh, I listen to it loads and loads. And I'm quoting, he's put, it never fails to bring joy. Uh, And I think it is. I think that sort of sums it up. And I love that, you know, having a live record, especially, you know, during this lockdown, we don't want to keep harping on about it, but... It, it, that's been good for people. Yeah, that was a lovely side to all of that. When we started getting the comments from people who were first starting to hear it, it there was an awful lot of that kind of love of, oh, this is obviously it's the next best thing, but at the minute, this is just exactly what we need. So it did work really well. And a bonus for us was because it took a bit longer to press than we expected. I think it was supposed to come out in November, but it actually came out on the 18th of December in the end. So that meant that for the first time in our entire career, it charted on Christmas Day and it went into the charts. So we actually had a hit on, <laughs> on Christmas Day. That never happened. <laughs> that it's amazing. I love that. I Even love- better than that is the charts change at about four o'clock in the afternoon the following week. So we were still in the charts on New Year's Day this year, which means we've now charted in, is that four different decades or three? No, it is. Oh my gosh. No, it is, no, it is. Ten, twenty, yeah. Tens and then twenties. So we've actually charted in four decades. 
albeit we're That's only good. in the charts this decade for about 14 well, hours. Doesn't matter. Doesn't, <laughs> doesn't matter. matter. You take really that. Take that. And you know what? We'll, we'll come back to talk of um, live albums as well at the end, because at the end of each episode, we always ask our guests for a, a live album reference but i do like that chat of of records because i think that's that's sort of important as well i was going to ask you rick and um, what was what was your musical background just taking us right the way back to the start did, were you in a musical household did you have um, parents who were, who were playing records all the time going to gigs or what was the sense? yeah totally that yeah my dad was a huge music fan my dad apparently i mean i was born in stockport um and my dad used to play in bands around pubs in that area um he was a drummer my sister's actually got a really great picture of uh, my dad on stage with these other two guys behind his drum kit. But then he and my mother had my older brother, which kind of put paid to him doing that because they were the times. So my dad always was into music. Whenever whenever we went on long car journeys, there was always music on. Or, or the older we got as kids, it's me, my brother and my sister. And we'd be sat in the back on car journeys, each with our own headphones in. It must have driven my mother around the twist <laughs> hearing three different versions of... T- <laughs> what was your dad playing in the car? Well, he he was liked a lot of stuff, right? He was quite a big fan of things like ABBA and stuff, and you know, I mean, he did have the top forty on. He just listened to anything really. But he had a, he had an organ at home as well, the Yamaha thing, and he kind of self-taught himself to play it. But for some reason, he really liked things like Klaus Wunderlich. So it'd be all this big organ music going on in the <laughs> living room. <laughs> the mighty Warlitzer. Oh, yeah, yeah, he loved all of that stuff. But, you know, I mean, fair play to my parents, because when jumping jumping ahead slightly, when we were in bands, when we were like 13, 12, 13, 14, you're still learning your way, aren't you, really? But they'd always just let us rehearse in the kitchen or something. And this is with a full drum kit and amps and being dead loud. And they're sat in the living room next door trying to, listen to, trying to watch Coronation Street or something. But they never moaned and they always allowed it to happen. So it's a big... Big heads up to my parents for that, really. Sure. And I can say, Chris, I've danced with Rick's mum throughout a gig on side stage at one, and she's hilarious. She's hilarious. And also, it is super cute as well, especially I recognize it now as I'm a dad. She's so she's so excited. And it was almost like she was she was pretty much saying to me, ask my boy. I, well, yeah, we know. <laughs> we know that. <laughs> but she's still so, so proud. Of, yeah, of- she is quite proud. Yeah, and it's nice. But, you know, as I say, they helped a lot without really even realising. Because a lot of kids get into things and it's a fad, isn't it? But I think... You know, I was, I remember being nine or 10 and just really archetypal hairbrush in the mirror, dancing and singing along to whatever I was listening to in my bedroom. And that never kind of left me. So when I eventually met Paul, he rather aggressively stopped me down this street on the way to school. Uh, I've never, I've not met him up to this point, even though we're in the same year. What age would this be? 11. 11. (laughs) We just started and he kind of very aggressively said, where did you get your bike? I was I was riding my bike and he was walking. He stopped me and said, where did you get your bike? Uh, so I told him, Bob Trotters. <laughs> of course, Bob Trotters. <laughs> and it was a grifter, by the way. Oh, yes! 
Yes. Color coded gears. <laughs> Love yeah. that grifter. And we just kind of became friends from that, really. And then decided, because we both were into music, that I was going to sing and he was going to play guitar, even though I'd never done it in front of anyone and he'd ne- he didn't even have a guitar. So I think his parents bought him this really crappy guitar. But to be honest, for the first couple of years, until we were about 13, we'd basically just, and this is starting around the time of Frankie Goes to Hollywood and, and pretending we were in them in, in my kitchen. At the same time, we would spend hours in each other's bedrooms designing record sleeves to the songs that we'd yet to write. You know, we'd, we'd, even down to drawing the barcode on the back. <laughs> Please tell me that one of your album covers is something you drew as a kid. No, well, I don't think any of them were kept, unless Paul did. Uh, I, I'm, I'm quite bad at stuff like that. I'll just, apart from obvious laminates and gig tickets, if it's anything like that, it's just in the way, so I'll just get rid of it. But it's a shame because it would be nice. I mean, I'm sure there might be, there might be some things in the attic because I've still got a lot of my handwritten lyrics in notepads for all of our early songs. Yeah, I think you've still got them. Yeah, but not just the written out song with all of the kind of bits scribbled out that didn't quite make the cut, you know, just lots lots of scribbly notes. So then it'll be, I'll have Chasing Rainbows somewhere where it'll start off with a different verse, which is crossed out, and then the real verse written underneath, you know. We've all got Chasing Rainbows written there. <laughs> For the listener, I'm, I'm holding up my handwritten lyrics of Chasing Rainbows there. <laughs> There's this anecdote that my friend, so one of my good friends growing up, Seth, in the 90s or in the 90s we we would go to gigs together he'd talk about his dad now his parents had split and his dad he'd always talk about his dad being this off the wall character and a real interesting guy and i'd never met him never met his dad and we bumped into him on queen street the 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 main uh, street in cardiff and uh, and i could tell just by looking at him this is one kooky guy and he had a, he had a, he had a cloth bag right on his shoulder and Seth's like, right, yeah, so this is my dad that I've told you all about. So I'm like, oh, nice to see you, chatting, chatting. And Seth and I must have had a HMV or a Virgin Megastore bag. We, we'd, one of us had bought an album. Seth had said, hey, here's one for you, Al. My dad has always got CDs in his bag. And he's like, dad, have you got any CDs in your bag? Like He's like, yeah, 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 I've got a CD. And Seth, I kid you not, and I'll, I'll, you'll listen to this. And, and he went... Just name an album, Al. I went, name an album. Um, Shed 7, Change Giver. His dad, I shit you not, puts his hand in this cloth bag, pulls out, Shed 7, Change Giver. He's my pants laughing. Because this would have been just after the album was released. So you were, it's not like we were 10 albums in and everyone's walking around with a Shed 7 album. But there's this 40, 50 year old guy walking around. Wow. He's got a cloth bag and he pulled it out. And Seth and I laugh and he'd, he lives in Sydney now. And he'd, he'd, um, every time I put on social media that I've, you know, come to see you guys live or whatever, he always reminds me of his dad on Queen Street pulling out <laughs> a Changed Giver album. Well, yeah. At first, at first, sir, I thought, how big's his cloth bag? How many albums has he got in there? <laughs> he had one CD in there. One CD. Really? That's yeah. weird. I could have oh, what said a cool anything. Bloke. What a it's cool guy. Really cool. He also introduced us to uh, Tricky. It's funny. Yeah. He, funny, funny guy. I could tell you stories about that. So, yeah, that was. Uh, I've had an early relationship with your albums. <laughs> <laughs>
So we're uh, we're assuming then that you got that performer instinct from your dad. You and Paul had got together. You were already drawing albums, writing them. What was your first gig? What and and what shape or what form did that take? Thirteen year olds playing for your parents, or did, was it school, or do you class? What do you class? Well, it depends what you would term gig. I can give you a few examples. I think... Um, I want you to tell me what you think your first Right, gig. well, I'll, I'll give you a few and you decide. But the first public performance, I guess you would call it, <laughs> yes. was when we were about 12. So we were still yet to really master the songwriting side of things. Really at 12, right? <laughs> it was me and Paul and another lad who was in our year at school called Lee Muncaster. And we, and I think this is why he was in the band, man, because he had a Casio keyboard. Yeah, he was the cool kid. So he didn't really know how to play it. Oh, did he not? There was a button that you can press, which is the demonstration button. Of course. So <laughs> that was his job, was to press that button. <laughs> And then, you, and, then, and then we had about three minutes of demonstration music and it went something like... <laughs> so Paul wrote the lyrics to our first ever song. Which was lyrics to a demonstration? Yeah, and it was called The Creature of Dreams. <laughs> and it, we've recorded it, we've got it somewhere. Shut up. Paul's got it. In fact, I think he, he played it to me not so long ago, and I sound like my balls really do need to drop, but I was about 12. That is brilliant. I'm singing it, and at the time, Paul's older sister, or Paul's parents, sorry, had invited this German exchange student to stay at their house. So she, the German exchange student, brought about seven or eight of her German friends who were staying in other households round to Paul's living room and we performed The Creature of Dreams for them. <laughs> Your lyrics to the demonstration song on a Casio. <laughs> Well, that was our first public performance. <laughs> that is amazing. I'll be honest, you've got some balls doing that, haven't you? Well, yeah. This is the thing, you see, because looking back, yeah, you're probably right, but at the time, we just wanted to be in a band. We just wanted it, you know, that's what we wanted to do. And without stuff like that, I don't think we would have done. That is so funny. So yeah. after that, when we were probably about 14 and 15 and we're at school and we'd kind of, we'd kind of started to get the knack of how to create songs i mean maybe not great but we're when kind did, of hang on when did a name a name come about oh well that first band with the cassia we were called enam right oh, and do you know why we were called enam no oh enam e-n-a-m yeah no we were called that because at the time paul had a huge obs obsession with watching vietnam war films like Full Metal Jacket or whatever it's called. And uh, so he decided that we should be called Enam because it's short for Vietnam. <laughs> wow. We were 11 and 12. I love, yeah. What was he doing watching those films then? Yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah. So, so when we were about 14 and 15, we formed a band called Broccoli Haven. <laughs> you, are, you are shitting me. 
Right, and the reason we were called Bro- Brockhaven. Broccoli Haven. The reason we were called Brock, and it wasn't broccoli as in the vegetable, it was spelt B-R-O-C-K-L-E-Y. Well, the place in London. Oh, exactly that, right. And the reason we were called that was because at the time, Paul, I think he'd just gone on holiday with his parents to Milford Haven and he'd got off with a girl. Uh, so he had fond memories of the place. So we were thinking of a band name and we thought Haven's good, isn't it? So then we thought, let's just put a pin in a map and see where it lands for the first word. And it landed in broccoli. <laughs> I can't cope. I literally can't cope with this. <laughs> so that's what we're called. But hold on, this was actually your mirth aside. This was our proper school band, right? This is with Tom. Tom had joined. Tom was also in our year at school, so we'd known Tom, and we all, there was a group of us in our year that liked the same kind of music. You know, we were kind of classed as slight oddballs because we liked the Smiths and stuff. Right. And everyone, everyone else, kick <laughs> your face. Everyone else, everyone else was into stuff like Madonna and stuff. So we were kind of the odd indie kids at that time. We weren't really that keen on charity stuff as much. So already we were kind of looked down upon in 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 ways. I mean, to the point actually where going slight, sorry, slightly going back to Enam times. Me and Paul. <laughs> You've given yourself a time period for you now. Well, we're 11 or 12. You need to be careful when Alex is taking a drink and you say something like that, he's going to ruin his microphone. Yeah, well, I take us back to the Enam times. (laughs) (laughs) Right, well, it's it's, it's a bit of information I've just remembered. So basically, me and Paul would swan around school as 11 or 12-year-olds telling people we were in a band, you know. And there was one occasion on a school lunch break where we're all outside in the playing fields running around. Two or three of the harder lads from our year kind of knocked me to the ground and one of them had his hand around my throat while while he's on top of me on the ground and he said to me we've heard you the singer in a band sing then <laughs> I'm thinking well <laughs> you'd have to take your hand off my throat for a start <laughs> oh no what did you sing did you sing the demonstration song no no I didn't sing that at that point I just thought well that's not great and this is this is my first experience of fa- fame um <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well. but luckily the dinner bell the dinner lady rang the dinner bell at that point and everyone had to go back in so i got out of that first gig Uh, (laughs) i wanted to know i would i'd love to have known what song was on so so, (laughs) well i needed the demonstration button i can't i couldn't do that (laughs) so um so yes so broccoli haven with uh, so tom joined on bass um alan's (laughs) alan alan leach's Well, Alan Leach's brother, John, joined on keyboards, proper keyboards, you know, where he actually played them. And we had a a lad called Magnus who played drums. So we were actually more of a serious, even though we were still quite young, we were taking it a lot more seriously. To the point where, you know, they used to do these things at the school we went to on a Saturday morning. They'd have these things called pop shops where some older guys would allow some younger kids to come in and they did say right well go off in groups and write the song and then perform it at the end um, and then they were there to kind of give you pointers on how how you could get the bridge to sound and you know and make sure yeah. the solo is not too long and all of this 
but we would ordinarily turn up at these things with a fully formed song and just play it straight away. <laughs> so, you know, we'd always had, we always had that kind of thing going on. And Broccoli Haven was very House Martinsy sounding, you know, and we were writing our own songs then. Unfortunately, my dad got testicular cancer and I wrote a song for him um, at the time. He got better from that. And I wrote a song called Roger the Workaholic. Because he, he did work hard, my dad. Uh, and the chorus to that was something like, Roger the workaholic, worked for 20 years, yes, sir, worked off his bollock. Oh, that is brilliant. That is brilliant. That, that, was, that was one of my couplets when I was about 15. Oh, that's classic Rick Witter. <laughs> <laughs> How long so, did Broccoli Haven last? Broccoli Haven lasted until, probably until we were about, 18 but we were doing gigs in pubs when we were about 15 i don't know how we got away with it really but we were going and playing in pubs when we were about 15 and getting told off at school for putting posters up around the school corridors advertising the fact that we were playing in the spotted cow (laughs) what what were you playing at those pub gigs at that age or all covers no no some of our own stuff and covers mixed together you know and there's you know i've got so many memories of that for some reason there'd be a group of people who would always like to come and start a fight at our gigs but they'd never they'd never be harmful to us i think they just got it in the reds that one of a broccoli haven gig meant a big scrap so i remember um we did play this place that now it's now a chinese restaurant it was called the spotted cow quite near the barbican center um, and we played there, and I remember it was packed. There must have been about 100 people in there. It was quite a small room, but it was full of people. And all I could see well, as we stood on this small stage performing was these big, heavy pub stools being thrown across people's heads. So the gig was stopped. Everyone's chucked out. And then when we're going up to get our little bit of money that we should have got for playing at it, the landlord saying, no, no, look at all of these broken stools. You're not, you're not getting paid. So that was kind of a harsh reality check straight away. Who was looking after you at 15 and 16? Who was getting you to that pub? and My parents driving us because me and Paul lived quite near to each other. And my dad had bought me like a little PA with legs and stuff. So my dad would probably take me and Paul and then Paul's dad would pick us up and take us home again. That is brilliant. So let's try and add into this timeline then. When did you and your mates start going to gigs? Uh, Relatively late, to be honest. I remember Tom going to watch Lloyd Cole in Bradford when he was about 16. Apart from local bands in pubs, I remember going to see the Lilac Time, who was I was quite a big fan of. Yeah, Um, even Duffy? Yeah, Stephen Duffy, knee Stephen Tintin Duffy. Tintin Duffy, yes, of course. Yeah. Who did you know was the original singer in Duran Duran? Was he? He was. He was. Uh, he left and Simon Le Bon joined and the rest is history. No way. Mm-hmm. So Lilac Time was your first gig um, on the continent, you Yeah, from what, I, from what I can remember, yeah. Um, there might have been somebody before that. Um, yeah, that's, and that's kind of late 80s, that. Um, I'm trying to remember what... Um, uh, label they were on because I remember Select magazine. Fontana I think was it because mm-hmm. Select so. Select magazine put out a compilation tape and they were on it I think who else was on it Yellow were on it and Fontana you reckon well that seems to that immediately came into my mind from from imagining the back of one of their albums I've seen to recall maybe that Fontana. Do 
did you keep any of your gig ticket stubs or anything like that or was that just I still actually got some some proper printed out photographs of that gig i went on my own um and took a few pictures of him so i'll have them somewhere yeah, which that'll be quite interesting to dig out yeah because um we we keep repeating this but um chris and i both have scrapbooks because we're geeky of our um ticket stubs now i can't wait for the time that i can get mine because it's in my mum's attic and i can't go and visit her in cardiff i'm not yes i do have my ticket stub from december the 10th 1996 rick witter what were you doing that night right most times people ask me where I went on holiday in the 90s and I can't remember. So if you're actually asking me for a specific date and only presume we were doing a gig somewhere and you've got the stub. Absolutely. You were in a leisure centre. You were in Newport Leisure Centre. Ah, yes. It was, it was the Chasing Rainbows tour. And in fact, I, I took my sister as an early Christmas present because she was a massive fan of Maximum High. And that was pretty cool because I had already, you know, for a good few years been going to cool gigs and this was my older sister who, you know, was more tears for fears than that lark. And I was taking her to a cool gig. And I was like, yeah, taking my sister to a cool gig. And you were supported. <laughs> Do you remember who you were supported by? Mm, so this is 96, is it? Yeah, so it was could, a hell of a support. Could that have been the Long Pigs? No, or... no, but that's, they were. Catatonia? Yes, Catatonia. That's when she was very much on fire, Keris. How was that as a tour? Because that was the Chasing Rainbows tour. Yeah, so that was kind of like the end of the Maximum High campaign, I think, because... Yeah, because you you toured it earlier in the year. Yes, we had. And also Chasing Rainbows was written while we were touring the Maximum High album. Therefore, it wasn't ready in time to put on a maximum high obviously because we were writing it when we were touring the album and the album's out so that's why chasing rainbows is on the let it ride album but that that was good that year because because we released chasing rainbows it meant that we were the only act that year in 1996 to have five top 40 singles nobody else did that that year really Wow. Yeah. Well, I saw you first in 95 and um, I was telling Alex that the first time I saw you was at um, Tea in the Park, 95. Right. And it was the always one. a messy one. Oh, yeah. Always messy. Always messy. And the main stage, there was a TBC at 12 o'clock on the main stage. And I can't remember who that was. I seem to remember oh. it was really deliciously random. I can't remember who it was. Then Marion were on. Then Correct. Then Reef, then you guys, then Charlatans, Tricky, who's been mentioned earlier. Oh, of course, yeah. And then Kylie. Uh, <laughs> Kylie, Kylie, Kylie played and then and was joined on stage by Nick Cave. Oh, right. Yeah, that kind of rings a bell now, actually. Yeah, from yeah, that It was a time. beautiful day. It was she went, she went quite indie, didn't she? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Bradfield, James Dean Bradfield, he, he did a song for her, didn't he? Yes, he did. Yes, yeah, yeah. She did go she, indie for a time. I, did she end up? I can't remember. I, she may have even ended up joining the Mannix on stage in London to sing "Little Baby Nothing." Yeah, it wouldn't surprise me at all. At that time, anything went, didn't it? Yeah, yeah. It was it was funny times actually. I, I enjoyed yeah. that sort of side of the music scene at that. It's, it well, it's of- funny that people keep putting posters of. 90s festivals or early noughties festivals online now like the v festival or whatever or tea in the park 
or yeah. Reading. And, and if when you look back now, it was, it, some of the lineups were just incredible, weren't they, really? I mean, people were so lucky, you know, yeah. just really, really, there was such a such a, an age of music that you don't really see anymore at festivals. It, it's just huge band after huge band just following each other, yeah. you know. And when I look at because I bought the programme, um, it was my first festival, 95. And when I look at the programme now and look at the bands that I didn't even get a sniff of, I didn't see them oh. because I wasn't into them then. And now it's awful. Yeah. Nah, it's awful. So you, you went to see, I can't remember who it was. You went to see Terror Vision, but instead of the Cockroach <laughs> Twins. <laughs> doing, That's your fault. Do you know what I mean? These kinds of, and so maybe I shouldn't yeah. it anymore because yeah, yeah, there are those little moments. But I mean, that festival was, it must have been a peak of, or just as Britpop was getting really big. I mean, I don't know what you, what do you feel about the whole the whole term? Or are you absolutely sick to the back teeth of answering? No, no, just take it with a pinch of salt, really. You know, at the end of the day, I do kind of understand that things need to be coined, but yeah. you can kind of see, because when we formed Shed 7, we did that. We, we kind of stopped Broccoli Avon because we heard the first Stone Roses album. So we suddenly had an epiphany of wow you know this we need to start taking things a little bit more seriously rather than wearing waistcoats and having pictures taken on railway tracks and writing about (laughs) so we disbanded that and then me tom and paul went on to form sheds no not paul actually at this point it was joe we formed shed seven with the aim of becoming a lot more serious and a lot more credible and even almost copying the Stone Roses in in the respect that we heard that they didn't really do tours, they just did events and did one-off gigs in warehouses. So we wanted to kind of (laughs) do a similar thing because York's a very small city full of pubs and full of bands playing in all these pubs week in, week out. So you can go and see the same band three or four times in a month. So we, we just thought, right, let's just do three or four gigs a year, you know, in, in more unusual settings. For us, we thought we were doing something a little bit, we're talking like 91, 92 now. We formed in 1990, Shed 7, but in 92, the guitar music had taken a little bit of a turn again and it wasn't very credible and it was more acid house and dance stuff going on and then the grunge comes in yeah. but all through that we're a little little known band in York writing songs like Dolphin and whatnot and playing and looking a bit different from everyone else but you know there's a band called the Blue Tones in London probably doing the same thing and a band called Sleeper doing the same thing and a band called Oasis doing the same thing and you know so obviously all of that came to a big crashing head in the as you say 95, 96 but I do remember um, a very early Shed 7 gig where they'd opened a new venue. I think it was called Ellington's. And it was actually where the original Fibbers in York was before that moved on Stonebow in York. Um, but before it was Fibbers, it was called Ellington's. And it was a couple of lads who'd taken it over. Um, and they invited us to be the first band on at their venue. So we arrived with all of our gear at about half four to set up and sound check to be presented by the two brothers saying, I'm really sorry, guys, but the music license hasn't come in time. So you're not going to be able to play. So we're thinking, oh no, we're really looking forward to this. So at the time, Alan worked for this company that used generators. So we thought, right, I'll tell you what, why don't we, Sainsbury's is just around down the road. Why don't we set up in Sainsbury's car park, use a generator to power the amps and play a gig in Sainsbury's car park? So we put a notice on the Ellington's front door because it couldn't open saying, sorry, 
we can't play it tonight, but if you come to Sainsbury's car park, we'll do a little gig for you there. And it was literally a five minute walk from the venue. So we set up in Sainsbury's car park. This must've been about 1991. We set up in Sainsbury's car park, like you would set up on a stage with the wall behind you and there's no cars in there because the supermarket's shut. It's about eight o'clock at night and about a hundred people probably came. So we, we started playing and it was quite residential around it. So we started playing and we only had about eight songs. So we played three or four songs and it was going all right. And then I think one of us had the idea of trying to create a little bit of press. So it was suggested that I went to the nearest phone box and phoned the police <laughs> saying, saying there's a li- there's a band playing in Saint's car park and it's, it's really loud. You know, it's causing dis- disturbance. So I went and did that, dashed back and told the crowd, right, the police might be here in a minute. So we carried on, no police, carried on, no police, finished the set, still no police. So well, we thanked the people for coming. They all <laughs> left Saint's car park. We're packing our equipment away. The police arrive. What are you doing? That is amazing. So, so what are you doing? Well, we just did a gig, but we're off now anyway. Don't worry about it. <laughs> the crappiest PR stunt ever. <laughs> did it make the papers? <laughs> no, it didn't make the papers in the end, no. You know what? Just the... packing up in the supermarket. <laughs> <laughs> 15 minutes. That's all you needed, 15 minutes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, good God, come on. <laughs> I was going to ask you about um, venues and, and your favourite venues to play. That's the best. Your, your best venue is clearly... Oh, yeah, definitely. Dangerous car park. It's still there. Yeah, it's still there. <laughs> still there here's, another weird, here's another really weird thing. I find this quite strange, actually, myself. When, really? we, were writing, when we were writing a Maximum High, we yeah. spent most of 1995 writing a Maximum High. And this is so obviously we'd done Change Giver and all of that, but where we rehearsed for Change Giver, that went. So we were struggling to find somewhere to write and practice and get these songs whipped into shape. So Tom knew a lad whose dad owned a potato farm um, and it was called Cockerell's Potato Plant. So this was on the whole road coming into York. And he had his own potato plant there. And this, this lad said to Tom, look, my dad's got this big old potato plant where all the potatoes get tracted in from the fields and then they all get processed and bagged up. But there's some disused offices there so you can make as much noise as you want. So we thought, oh, that's great. And it was free, I think, as well. So that's just brilliant. So we found ourselves writing a lot of the maximum high on the site of this potato plant to the point where you could see these tractors with massive truckloads of potatoes coming in and out. But it was good and we managed to do quite well out of that. In fact, <laughs> the single sleeve for getting better is taken in that very room where we wrote a lot of really? them songs. Is yeah. it? I was going to say, so, is it not worth just changing the name back to Broccoli Haven just while you're on the potato farm? <laughs> we're from Yorkshire and people always accuse us of writing meat and potato songs so why not say this (laughs) (laughs) love that so so basically this is the bizarre point to this so that's where a lot of Maximum High was written Uh, then obviously Maximum High did okay so we could afford somewhere better than a potato plant to, to conduct our business but then a few years later that potato plant got knocked down and I'm not kidding here 
Um, and it could almost become a tourist attraction, this, if they wanted it to be. They built, they, they, listen, they built a massive B&Q on the site of this potato plant. And right where they sell the sheds outside. No way. Exactly where we used to write our songs. <laughs> <laughs> honestly, honestly. That's wonderful. Oh, right, I'm... Chris, when we get out of lockdown, I'm driving us over. Blue plaque under our arm. Yeah, and in fact, we're picking you up on the way, Rick, and we're going there. That. Oh, yeah, I'll show you. It's it's quite incredible, really, isn't it? (laughs) It's quite incredible. (laughs) It's where they sell all the sheds. It's incredible. (laughs) (laughs) So, so do do you have a uh, from over the years? Do you have a favourite venue? Not as such, no, because as I touched upon earlier, wherever we tend to play the atmosphere is the most important part of a Shed 7 gig for me. I mean, obviously, there's nicer, warmer, more comfortable, better soundproofed venues. Um, Glasgow Barrowlands is always a joy to go and play at because of the springy floor and the atmosphere in there. Um, That's Chris's favourite venue. My favourite. Yeah. yeah. So after I saw you at Tea in the Park, I saw you at the venue in Edinburgh in January '96, and then... November that year in 96 at, at the Barras. Uh, yeah. It's just beautiful. I, I, I had the pleasure of photographing there for the first time a couple of years back, and I, I was like Charlie in the Chocolate Factory. Yeah. Amazing. It is a great place. It's a really great place, and it's just, it's just magical, isn't it? And the weird thing is, when you walk in there on an afternoon when it's empty, it doesn't look particularly that big, but when the crowd's in there, it just looks huge. It's funny. Absolutely. I, I keep repeating myself each ep- in, on lots of these episodes, but so many musicians say that about the Barrowlands. Like yeah. it, it, the Mannix, the Mannix love it. So, so yeah. many, there must be something about the Barrowlands then for, for so many of you to, to, say, to say that about it. It's just magic. It's just got this magic about it, you know. But then this, you know, it's always great playing the Brixton Academy because that's got its own special kind of vibe going on apart from it's very cold backstage but that's me sounding like a 48 year old man <laughs> yes no. get your travel rug over your knees and you'll be fine <laughs> yeah get the word <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, you know i mean even manchester academy that we would ordinarily play i mean it's just a square big box room but it's got it creates this magical atmosphere when we're in there it's just it's a, just such a great venue to play at as is the new Victoria Warehouse in Manchester that we did last year. That's had a nice touch to it. And uh, Camden Roundhouse, that's a great venue. And that's weird because we actually, that was a a renowned venue in the 60s and 70s where the Rolling Stones would go and play and stuff. And then it got derelict. And we actually did the video to Ocean Pie in 1994 in, in the Camden Roundhouse. Um, when it was just a derelict building before it reopened, I don't yeah, think I, so. I've ever. I'm gonna have to go back and watch that now. With that, I don't think I've ever clicked. I don't think I've ever. Yeah, clicked so if you go there. back, you might even see the kind of pillars in the middle of the yeah. gig. They were still obviously there because they're holding up the roof, but you know, it's just a derelict unit, really. Yeah, it's a very distinctive venue, isn't it? Yeah, so that was filmed there, all quite dark and gloomy with the lights and stuff. And then it was really lovely to go back a couple of years ago and actually play it properly.
Chris, I reckon it's time for the quick fire round. Quick fire round, yeah. One we were going to ask was the strangest gig, but I think you've already answered it. It's uh, it's um, Sainsbury's car park. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Have you got an, a more strange gig than that? Or, or is that going to be your answer to strangest gig? Because that uh, is a, that's amazing. Yeah, off, off the top of my head, that's probably the, the strangest. I mean, there the probably has been. I remember doing a festival in Canada when we were probably change giver time. So we were starting to get a bit of a name, um, but quite clearly not in Canada because um, it was one of these big Canadian festivals over three days. I think we were playing on the Friday afternoon, one of the first bands on, and there wasn't that many people who'd even arrived at it yet. Um, but we found ourselves playing our set while they were still erecting the scaffolding either side of the stage. So there was just loads of men in booking. Oh, my gosh. With work belts on and drills. Oh, wow. <laughs> Whilst you're on? That, yeah, while we were doing a gig, which wasn't great. Well, that was going to lead me on to another question, which is I know that some bands kind of, especially if they're playing in Europe, they might get teamed up with a, a support band that really work, that doesn't quite work together. So <laughs> has there ever been a kind of a, a match up with you and uh, a support band or you supporting a band um, where you thought that? Eh? Um, or are you following a band or coming before a band in a festival where it's just like absolute chalk and cheese? Well, we supported Aerosmith for a start, so that's... Uh, that's one, yeah. That's yes, one. Yes, of course you did. You yeah. supported Aerosmith, didn't you? We did about five or six gigs on their arena tour of England at that time, yeah. <laughs> how was that? How was, how was Tyler? Well, it was it was a funny one because we heard that he'd specifically asked for us, and I don't know now whether or not that was a load of rubbish. But we thought that he was inviting us to play with them, so and which we thought was a bit weird because they are quite rock. Oh, they're not quite rock; they are classic Pure, rock. Yeah, yeah, they yeah, are. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, we um, agreed to do it because there was, to be fair, around that time they had a couple of really good songs. There was a song called "Crying," which is a great song. We did it. We didn't meet any of the band apart from Stephen Tyler once on the very first gig. He came to our dressing room, which was quite nice of him, I thought, at the time, giving his credit. But the problem was they were all strictly on the wagon. The whole band, the crew, the management, everybody involved in that tour wasn't allowed near a drink or any drugs. Right. So we were kindly asked... If we would only drink in our dressing room with the door shut, so that at least they allowed us to have a few lagers and stuff in, the, in our dressing room. But we thought, well, hold on a minute, we're in a band and all, and you know, if you caned it over the years, the thought of seeing a drink is going to make you want one immediately. We just thought, well, hold on, we like to have a drink on the stage. So um, I don't know if you heard this story before. We we uh, concocted this plan. We got someone who was working for us to just nip to the nearest supermarket and bought a few bottles of Tango that were like them old school black Tango bottles. <laughs> so he went and brought loads of them. We emptied the Tango out and filled them full of lager just so we could have a drink on stage and relax into it because it was quite a daunting experience anyway, playing in front of thousands of Aerosmith fans who, by the way, mostly were shouting, fuck off, you don't belong here, while we were playing volleyball. <laughs> 
We know. <laughs> we know. But to be fair, a lot of people got into Shed 7 and said the first time I saw you was when you supported Aerosmith. So these are obviously armchair Aerosmith fans who just like yeah. music in general. Yeah. So, so it was worth doing, is my point there. So anyway, so just before it's time for us to go on at this first gig, uh, the lad who is working for us, one of his responsibilities was just to take the drinks out and put them next to the drums and one next to my feet and one next to the, you know, whatever. So we're, we're waiting to go on and this lad's got six or seven bottles of black tango on a tray, carrying them backstage to the stage. And he's walking down this long corridor and there's Stephen Tyler. And uh, Stephen Tyler apparently said to him, Hey man, I haven't had tango in years. No. And he's, and he's going, don't have a sip, don't have a sip. <laughs> <laughs> Which is quite a quite, uh, comedy moment. <laughs> Ed Seven's tango dragged yeah. Aerosmith off the wagon. We could have tangoed him, couldn't we? Um, do you have, uh, next one, because it is the quick fire round, do you have any um, pre-gig rituals? Personally, yes, but I'm not telling you any of them. I'm, I am quite OCD. Are you? I am, yes. But um, I don't, and... The band don't even know the type of things I get up to before we go on stage because I do them in a subtle way, but I feel it's a ridiculous scenario that goes round and round and round. Okay. I do it because I want the gig to be good, and I've got this stuck in my head that if I don't do these particular stupid little things, the yeah. gig won't be very good. And then nine times out of ten we do great gigs but there might be one particular gig where for whatever reason i've not enjoyed it or i've thought it wasn't a great gig and i come off the stage after that particular time and i'll say right i'm not doing that again tomorrow because it hasn't worked and then the next night i'm doing the exact same things again wow. which is very frustrating mm, and, and when and when you say when you say things are they physical because I, I don't want you to, to but are some they... physical, some some yeah. physical, some mentally, some some. Uh, I call them my little chores. Right. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and and, and <laughs> my little chores. But see, on the band, the band sometimes because they know that I do stuff, and I think they're they're kind of looking at me more often than they would do, trying to see if they can work out the things they're that like I do. Yes. They will. They'll never. They'll never know. You'll take those little little chores and they're forever only going to be yours. Yeah, totally. But there's there's right. a three or four there's three or four little chores that I have to do before every gig, which I, I wouldn't do in ordinary life, which is weird, isn't it? It's just because I want the gig to be good. And it's not just it's not just I want the gig to be good. It's I don't want to slip over and walking out onto the stage. I don't want my voice to not have any to not work when I open my mouth and try and start singing the first word. You know, I'm you know all of the stupid things that could ruin a gig for you. Yeah. And what's your favourite song to play live to sing live and why? Impossible. And that's not a song title. It's just the answer to your question. I was going to say, you like playing Charlatan's song. <laughs> <laughs> Such a difficult question to answer because I kind of get joy from all of them. I mean, to, to answer that in a reverse way, people ask, do you get bored of singing the same songs all the time? And again, no, because every gig's different and everyone, we're just a very lucky band because everyone just tends to sing every word back. So it just makes the whole experience a joy. So for, for different reasons, I might enjoy singing different songs. I mean, obviously, Chasing Rainbows, we play that 
as the last song at every single gig and we extend the ending to make people sing along on their own, which is always a joy to see. That is a great moment of the set. Standby was always the one that the crowd just went. Yeah, well, that that just goes to show that our fans always come too early, which is what I enjoy telling them because they, Paul does the first chord ring out and then I'm supposed to start singing, but all the crowds start singing it. What'd you say? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I I always enjoy accusing the crowd of coming too early. (laughs) And that's become a thing. Because it it happens every gig now and it makes me smile. Because I'm waiting for the crowds. I think we're all waiting, especially for us regulars. I think we're all waiting for each other to interrupt Rick Witter. Yeah, it's, exactly. You're just trying to annoy me and it works it's, every time. It's, it's, <laughs> but the thing is, the thing. the thing is now I couldn't not do that because people yeah. really want to be told off. I mean, I, I think the last Glasgow gig we played at, it happened and I'm kind of stood there holding my hands up like that as if to say oh you've done it again and then I, I think I just said fuck off to about 4,000 Glaswegians which is quite a brave move on a Saturday night <laughs> and do you know what it'd be uh, remiss of me and there's there's a few bands that I've seen consistently through my life that produce certain moments in gigs and I know I've mentioned it with the Mannix and when they play Motown junk and and it was um it was Chasing Rainbows, obviously, from 96 onwards anyway. And I wish it was something else because, let's be honest, it's so predictable. Um, hmm. To be honest, I'm thinking I'm seeing at the last few gigs, Better Days is kind of taking on its own. Yeah, it is. It is. World. And it is a very, shed ter- very Chasing rainbows kind of song. So I then slap myself again and think, well, what's wrong with, what, why, what's wrong with that being predictable? Because what you've done is you've created... You've created a moment. You've created a, um, you know, you have different bands who who have those moments. And 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 actually, I think I don't care if it's predictable. It's a wonderful thing. And of course, you, you know, you've cemented that for me because on on that last tour just before lockdown, I'd lost my father. And and unbeknownst to me, you know, you dedicated that at that Manchester gig. You dedicated "Chasing Rainbows" to my dad because yeah, dad and I loved loved that song and he, we, we spent a lot of months where he would drop me off at work and we would listen to that in the car together well because you told me that i couldn't not do that really obviously it's just that time and it was a but nice it, way of kind of seeing him off into the into oh, the next book. absolutely and i'll always appreciate that but i think as well even without that extra sort of emotion sentimentality for me it is always nice seeing seeing a crowd get behind their band even though it is always a party at every song at shed seven there is that anticipation of it's coming, coming, coming yeah coming to the end he is chasing rainbows and it's beautiful and yeah you know, some, some bands aren't able to do that or don't like to do that and so they change it up. yes and that's yeah, fine yeah. and i have i have i have absolutely res- you know respect for that yeah the big james fan and yes james, do that all the time don't they you never know yeah, what they're going to play yeah and they refuse to play a lot of their big hits don't they which yeah. is their, their, their prerogative Absolutely. to me to me i think shed Sember has become its own beast and i think a lot of that is because people know what they're going to get and if yeah. we only if we do it if we were to do shed Sember every year then i think people would perhaps start saying 
right, well, I'll tell you what, we went last year, so let's not bother this year and we'll go next year. And then if that started to happen, then suddenly you're playing smaller venues and then it suddenly isn't as big as what it is. So leaving it that year off is quite a canny move on our part. But then I think after two years, people really want to come and see us and they really want to see me jump into the pit for getting better and try and knock a few people's teeth out. They want to be told that they come too early and then they want the big finale money shot with chasing rainbows so you know why why muck about with something that is just going to work so well for everybody because we love performing them songs and we get a real thrill out of seeing people loving us performing them songs why would you change something like that unless people stop coming i mean as soon as people stop buying tickets we'll stop doing it but we're very we're a very fortunate band because people love coming to see us and then, of course, the only thing to top that is the the suspense of Will Allen flip over the top of his drums and actually snap his neck this time, or not? He's banned. <laughs> He's banned from doing it. I know. <laughs> He's stopped now. You've got to stop at a certain age, haven't you? You've got to stop at a well, certain age. Well, you, you know, this, this is the scenario, because he's been doing it a long, long time. Doesn't ordinarily every gig land on his feet, but the problem was, a couple of tours ago... Um. I got quite poorly uh, and I had a really bad throat and I got quite poorly and we were doing a gig that night. I think this was up in Inverness or somewhere. And yeah, granted, I'll hold my hands up. I was a bit stupid, but I, I am a smoker. So before the gig, I'm getting a bit nervous and I just really wanted a cigarette. You know, we were doing that gig that night. So anyway, I was just stood at the door having a cigarette and Alan saw me and, and quite right. They said, what are you doing that for? You've got a bad throat and stuff. And, you know, we don't want to be postponing gigs. So fair enough. But then that just made me think, well, hold on a minute, Alan, you jump over your drums every single gig. And at, <laughs> any, point, at any point you could break your ankle and the whole tour's off. So <laughs> you can't bollock me for having a cigarette when you do that. <laughs> So, so it was agreed unless well we did actually try and come up with some alternatives so it would have been quite funny to see our crew pushing one of those big crash mats in front of his drums just at the right moment and they could have landed <laughs> yes. on that yeah hey, if that happens me and chris will do it next door <laughs> me and chris will be the crash mat bringer on us or open the trap door you open the trap door. <laughs> Ends up in the car park. <laughs> in Sainsbury's car park, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, um, last last one, because I'm aware of time as well. We've taken so much of your time. Really appreciate it. Last one of the quick fire round. Uh, cover songs. If, if, you, if you had to play one cover song in your sets from now until the end of Shed 7, you can only pick the one. What would it be? Um, well, we have done a few good covers over the years. Um, I know, because I know you like a cover. Yeah, I'd probably opt for a Smith song. And because we we did panic for a few times, I'd probably opt for that, which will lead nicely into probably what you're going to ask me next. Um, d- d- uh, if you were a chocolate bar, what would you be? <laughs> no? You wanted me to, to give you a, a live, a favourite live song or album? Yeah, do you know what? I look at you. He's it's like he's smooth, aren't I? Oh, isn't it? It's it's like he's it's like he's done this before. That is true. (laughs) Do you know what? Before we get to that, that's the final, final question. I I think we've got to ask you one more. 
our fingers are not yeah. as much on the pulse as we would like to think they are. Um, yes. Uh, so, yeah, we, we sometimes need a little bit of help in our old age. Um, right, okay. Well, are you asking me to suggest somebody? Yeah. yeah. Who should yeah. we go out and um, um, pay pay for a ticket to go and see when, when all this um, lockdown chaos is over? Because hopefully we're right. going to do that as well. We're going to take each other to our favourite venues and travel right. around do some episodes around the place go to some gigs so we'll be coming to you guys and yeah, then tour of york the gig and right great well um so we're getting a list i've of noticed i've noticed um the the youth are coming up again there's a lot of good sounding really young guitar style bands yeah. coming out again now it feels like it feels like it's starting to turn again and, and live music when we're allowed could become great again. So without too much nepotism, there's a great, <laughs> there's an absolutely great band from York called Serotones. Go why, check why, them out. why would the nepotism be involved there exactly, Rick? Well, let's just say the singer is a good looking lad. And, yeah. uh, and he can swing his hips. If only we knew who his father was. <laughs> yeah, so they're worth it. To be, to be fair, though, they are actually, they're putting the time in and they're, and they're getting a lot better. You know, they're, they're learning the trade and it's, it's fun yeah. to see them doing it. And it's great to hear them coming out with new music all the time. So it's just a shame they can't go out and play it. So, well, do you know what? In lockdown, they've been, I've seen that they've been doing some covers. Yes. I sent. I sent it far and wide because as soon as I saw them playing The Cure... Yeah, it was great, that, wasn't it? It was absolutely brilliant. I sent it straight to my older sisters and was like, check this out, and this is this is actually Rick's boy. And and they they look great. They look gorgeous, don't they? They do, them? yes, they do. They've, they've mm. kind of got it, so they just need to... I mean, obviously, everything's been halted, which they've, they've kind of lost here, which is not just them, it's every band, really. But, yeah. you know, when you're a young band and you've got that hunger and you just want to get out there. It's, it must be so frustrating for all young bands in that respect. I mean, I'm an old fuddy-duddy now and, and we do things structured, but, you know, fingers crossed that later on this year, even hopefully, hopefully they can all just get themselves back out there and have fun just playing music. We ask of our guests to give us the title of either a, a, a live album or a live track from a live album that particularly resonates with you or one that you, you go to again and again. Um, what, what are the ones that kind of spring to mind for you? Well, um, I was giving this a little bit of thought earlier, um, and one that does spring to mind is the Smiths with their live album that's called Rank. Yeah. Um, because it was released just as we were kind of mid-teens and I'd never seen the Smiths it came out in 1988 after they'd split up I'd never got around to seeing them I would have loved to have done that at the time um so it was almost a bit like our Another Night Another Town album which was the next best thing it was kind of looked upon a little bit like that so it was played a lot at the time um just because it was different from the actual studio recordings and and obviously the the ad-libbing and all this yeah. So I'd probably, I'd probably opt for that. I don't listen to it as much as I probably should, but I used to listen to it a lot. But I'd probably and that that particular album, as I touched upon earlier, it is a classic live album. It captures the band at a certain point, and and that's what we wanted to do too. So I'll choose Rank. What a great album to finish up! Brilliant. 
Yeah. Rick Witter, this is your life, or, or something like that. That was your life. Or, well, it was. I'm knackered now. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, mate. Cheers, man. What an episode. See, I told you it was a great episode. You've got to love that man, haven't you? Rick Witter. What a guy. Absolutely. And we've got um, stories that have remained untold on this, this episode. And I think we need to revisit. I mean, there was, there was some belters. I love, I, I love the story about the, the gig in the car park. That, that's, that's absolute belter. Can you imagine if you were there? I, in, I mean, this is, oh no, it may not be so random because we're going to have uh, fans of Shed 7. If you were at that gig in the car park, please let us know and let us know what it was like. This is going to be like the Sex Pistols at the Lesser Free Trade Hall. <laughs> yeah, I was there. I was there. The whole of York. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's what I think of. I think of the Pistols there and I think of Shed 7 in the, in the supermarket. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Oasis at King Tut's and yeah, and, and Shed 7 in the Sainsbury's car park. I I, re- I really enjoyed that, and and of course band names. I love hearing the names of bands before they are the band that we know. You know, we and we had we had some choice ones there. Although I don't say too much and laugh too much because I think he liked broccoli cheese or cauliflower, whatever it was. You know, <laughs> like that one. So uh, now Rick Witter, we could we could do a second part with Rick easily. Yeah. And and listening back, some of the things that we we talked about before and after the actual interview um, would make your toes curl. So we we might have um, maybe an outtakes episode with all the different guests that we've had on, with all the things that we couldn't. I mean, there'll be a lot of bleeps probably. Hey, now that's news to me, and that that's exciting. I like the. In fact, as you've said that, the birds are singing outside. I'm sure you heard that. Yeah, we need an outtakes episode i like the idea of that yeah but onwards onwards because you lucky lot get another brand new gig stories podcast episode tomorrow you don't have to wait a week you don't have to wait another seven days it's coming tomorrow it's it's exciting for you i mean it's exciting for me as well for everyone but we're sort of more in your ballpark area aren't we with the chat well, yeah, it's um, yeah. So we're we're in. Oh, I don't want to give too many clues away. We're we're going into the jazz world. It's it jazz. That way. Come on, and I know this is a music podcast, but that's not even the most exciting bit about this. No, because we I know that we're we're interviewing lots of people who are involved in the music business, but we are um, speaking to people who just love their music, love going to gigs, love the live music experience, and so this guest Look. is. No, stop, stop, Chris. You're just teasing me too much. You're teasing them. I'm just saying this. I'm not going to tell you his name, but this person, his, oh, dang, I've given away a bit then. His, all right, this man has appeared in Star Wars films. Yeah, he's appeared in four of them. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my gosh. The intrigue. I know. It's non-stop intrigue. That's what I've heard people say out on the street to me when they stop me and say, hey, Gig Stories podcast guy. It is non-stop intrigue. Yeah, absolutely. 
I say, I'm saying nothing. I am not telling you about tomorrow's guest and his appearances on Star Wars. But it is a, it's a wonderful episode. And it's good for me personally because uh, I was ab- able to educate myself and, uh, and uh, genuinely I, I made a few notes of the artists that you and he were, you know, getting excited about because, as we've said before, jazz has is, is, is not been something I've massively got into. So. Oh, well, I have to say that his Spotify playlist, I've really enjoyed putting it together. It's an absolute cracker. Um, so, yeah, we will, we will enjoy listening to that again. Yeah, I should probably listen to our own Spotify playlist, shouldn't I? That'll be maybe. a good start. Maybe. And maybe you can too. And remember to get in touch with us, whether you're a Rick who loves Aerosmith uh, or if you've got your pictures uh, of ticket stubs, memorabilia, or you've got comments on uh, individual episodes, let us know. Thoughts on streaming as well, as we were talking in the intro. Um, What are your favourite bits of live music that streamed over the lockdowns, the various lockdowns? Um, Mm. Let us know about them. Um, But you can email us at info at gigstoriespodcast.com. And you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Gig Stories Pod. You are beautiful people. We'll be back tomorrow. Bye for now. Bye for now. Now, for those of you still listening, well done you. Because it's Easter, here's your little Easter egg. It's just one tiny outtake from the beginning of this podcast just for you. Exactly. It's a real cracker of an episode. And, um, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing it all over again. And you can hear it now for the first time. <laughs> I'm going to edit that bit. <laughs> I'm going to edit the shit out of <laughs> I want you to keep that in. No, there's not a I chance. Want you, I want you to keep in you going, I'm going to edit the shit out of that. <laughs> no, I'm really sorry. It's not happening. Oh, I mean, we could have it as a bonus at the end, as an Easter egg. <laughs> and there we go, listeners. This has been your easter egg enjoy your chocolate (laughs) use rick witter i'm definitely not keeping that in man
Nein, es <lacht> That is getting edited. It was the... I am uh, gonna edit the shit out of that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Whoo!